1: Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food. From politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on Smart Speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM.
0: Hello, it's Caroline Kenyon here from Bread and Butter. And I have a very special guest today. It's Julian Calouette Noble from the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Welcome, Julian. It's so lovely to have you. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be talking to you. And we're going to be talking about one of my favourite things, which is about food and family, because I know you have a big campaign going on. Well, first of all, Julian, let's just go back to Manning just tell us a little bit about the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Because I know about it, but I know that quite a lot of people who are not in the food industry don't necessarily know so much. So yes. tell us what it is. Of course, let me start um,
1: start there. So the Sustainable Restaurant Association in some ways does what it says on the tin. We work with restaurants around sustainability issues. So we were founded in London uh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, we were originally founded by two sustainability consultants, um, Giles Gibbons and Simon Hepner. And two restaurateurs, uh, Henry Dimbleby and Mark Sainsbury, that if you kind of rewind your mind back 15 years and think about what sustainability meant in the industry, there wasn't nearly as much conversation as there is today. Um, and instead, the origin of the conversation was really saying, we're seeing this increase in um, corporate social responsibility in the corporate world. We're seeing an increase in what was the beginnings of conscious consumerism. So the kind of rise of consumers look at searching out organic products and, um, you know, looking for sustainability labels like MSC on seafood and others in supermarkets. And yet it felt like when it came to restaurants, there wasn't really any guidance or support for the industry. So here we have a sector where pretty much every sustainability issue that you can think about globally comes together and hits the hospitality sector. So whether we're talking about food and farming, um, whether you're talking about energy use and energy cost, whether you're talking about social sustainability and employment and good quality employment, hospitality is a hotbed for all of these issues, but nobody was really out there doing a good job at kind of helping restaurants and hospitality businesses get connected to what actions they should be taking. So Sustainable Restaurant Association formed, and the key thing that we do is have a framework for hospitality businesses. It's called the Food Made Good Framework, and it helps to break down sustainability issues into 10 key areas for hospitality businesses to tackle. Now, alongside that framework, we then have an accreditation, the Food Made Good Accreditation, where businesses can, um, you know, every two years, businesses complete an audit. They submit information around what they're doing in each of these areas. And they come out of that with one star, two star, two star or three stars, just like the Michelin stars, where you've got a recognition of good practice, great practice and excellent practice when it comes to sustainability.
0: Wonderful. What a brilliant resume. Thank you, Julian. And I, I feel like I've got a really good handle on it now. Firstly, Great. just to say how prescient to set it up in 2010. And it could not feel more urgent now in the context of the state of the world, climatically, um, geopolitically, you know, really, really critical work that you're doing. And it's 100%. It's and I think it's this moment that we find ourselves in
1: is really one where sustainability has moved from being something really kind of low down on the risk register or something that only a certain type of restaurant cared about, one that was self-identifying as a sustainable restaurant, to now being something that is absolutely essential across the industry. No matter what type of restaurant you are, no matter what type of uh, food business, this is actually all Incredibly important to future-proofing your business to be able to continue to operate. Because as businesses that serve food, we are the most at risk to some of the instabilities of the climate. We are the most at risk to some of these instabilities of the geopolitical situation, like you've mentioned. We are the most at risk to the moving the movement of people and the fact that we've you know undergone this this staffing crisis within our industry um, in the the last few years post COVID. So these are all actually now not even just quote-unquote sustainability issues. They're just good business issues for, for our industry to address.
0: Absolutely. Well, they're critical to the, the survival of the industry, really. Exactly. I mean, I find it um, quite fascinating how few people know, for example, what the carbon is- emissions are from food. And it's, you know, 30% of all carbon emissions, just enormous. Exactly,
1: exactly. And it's funny to think, you know, that most people – assume that um, you know, travel is the largest impact in their life and they'll make decisions or they'll they'll make a choice um, for more sustainable travel, which is absolutely brilliant, but without entirely recognizing that actually the food that you're choosing ultimately has a bigger impact. And so we need to collectively shift our thinking around food. And I personally believe that a lot of that comes from Restaurants and the role that chefs and, you know, and, and restaurants have in terms of influencing beyond the, the front doors of a restaurant and beyond just their tables, um, you know, creating new ideas, fads, ways of, of thinking about food. Uh, restaurants are hugely influential in our lives in that way. And that can then trickle down beyond the restaurant
0: into our homes. I think that's a lovely segue, Julian, for us to talk about your campaign, which is food and eating and family. So tell us about that. Yes. So
1: this summer, we're running a campaign that's called The Power of Food. And I think one of the things that when we talk about being an organization, a sustainability organization, I think most people immediately think around the environmental impact. And they mostly think about things like energy, water, food waste is a big one that people come to us about, um, or the sourcing of the ingredients. But actually, we fundamentally believe that sustainability is holistic and that social impact is a huge piece of the role that restaurants play in um, and that food plays in the world. So the Power of Food is really a campaign to highlight that social impact and that ability for food to bring people together and and to make a real Difference in lives, and so the first half of this campaign is really focusing on the power of food and family, and that's both the uh, benefits of cooking with your children, of passing on that knowledge of food to your children, and and deepening those relationships around food, and also thinking more broadly around the ways in which your parents or your grandparents or your aunts and uncles, you know, the the kind of not just up. Uh, not just down to your children, but also up and back, and cooking with your parents and and gathering that knowledge from your grandmothers and your grandfathers can have a real power to strengthening the bonds within a family um, and and improving the health of a family.
0: I love all of that, and you're certainly preaching to the converted there, yeah. Gina, because I absolutely adore cooking. In fact, everybody in my family does, and we we all come at it from a, a sort of different angle. My my yeah. husband's a brilliant cook his uncle was the first tv chef a man called philip harbin oh wow and my mother-in-law was an amazing cook home amazing. cook um i just i love cooking i'm not brilliant but i love it my son is vegan oh, my wow. stepdaughter is a doctor and very keen on nutrition so we we all cook we all love eating we love eating together so yeah. but that is not the case for very many people. And I think it's really interesting, Gillian, I'd love to know what you think about this. But to a degree, it's like the sort of those who have least, and sometimes those who have most, yeah, who don't have that family community eating together. And just, yeah. you know, to illustrate, I'm quite involved on it in a voluntary way in the realm of food poverty which one might really call poverty mm. and often people they don't cook because they d- can't afford a saucepan or they can't afford right. to turn the cooker on so that's one thing and so they will eat fast food and everybody will choose their own fast food because that's just the way that they survive but yeah. at the other end of the spectrum I'll just give you uh, an example overheard in a lady's loo in <laughs> southwest London the other day I went to a lovely concert at Kew Gardens very, very privileged audience with very smart picnics. And there were two women in the ladies' loo talking to each other about their teenage children and what they'd left them to eat that evening. And one of them said, oh, I took my son round the supermarket and I let him choose. And he chose pizza and mango. Mango, (laughs) mango, mango. I have neither the patience nor the inclination for mango. (laughs) And I... I've been sort of half laughing and half enraged ever yeah. since. Yeah. And to me, yeah, to yeah, me yeah. It's that family never ate together. So yeah. I love what you're doing. Sorry, that's a rather long response to no, what and we're I are think- talking about. But it's what's happened to our society that we don't value eating together? Is it uniquely yeah. British?
1: So as an American, uh, I think I can confirm that it's not uniquely British. I think that we are seeing this, um, you know, this has happened over generations in uh, a number of places. And I actually think that, um, you know, as an American, I think we can put our hands up and claim some responsibility a bit here because of the, the sort of, Americanification of diets uh, around the world and the pushing of an industrial food system. The one thing that I would say, so I moved to England 13 years ago, and the main reason that I that I moved was because I was really inspired by the work of Jamie Oliver and um, the school dinners campaign, and I came to England to work for Jamie, and I spent the first, year, the first five years of my career here in London, I worked on school food and school food policy with Jamie. And I think the thing that I think is is so incredibly valuable around the mission, you know, and and the work that Jamie kind of kicked off all those years ago was pushing the idea that that a school meal can be a real equalizer and a school meal is a is a is a communal moment for every child in this country and that we want we need to re connect our um, our understanding and our love of food and that the universal way to do that is through schools. And I think when you go to that question about how do we get families to seat together and whether you're talking about the the high end, you know, or the low end and in, 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 of income schemes, I think fundamentally that comes from a value and an appreciation of food which was lost over the last you know few generations. And As food became increasingly cheap and devalued in our system, um, as it became incredibly easy uh, to to microwave things and to to pick things up, we have driven down and down and down the value um, of food and the cost of food. At the same time, something else has always been willing to sort of step in in its place. And so... You know, whether that's um, an increase in the amount of time we spend in front of screens or an increase of the amount of um, money that we spend on housing, Um, you know, that that makes it now feel impossible. Like, how could we spend more money on food or how could we spend more time together? We don't have time and we don't have money, but actually it is around what our culture values and how we can make those adjustments. And I think, you know, it's as pertinent today as it was 15 years ago when I first when I first kind of started these conversations in 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 my career um, is that schools are really, really valuable. And childhood is a really valuable opportunity to build those skills and to start that conversation.
0: Wonderful. So tell me how the campaign is working, Julian. How are you going to communicate and encourage families to eat together?
1: so first uh first of all we have been been launching this campaign in partnership with HSBC and so we've gotten um we've got the support of a global partner that's helping us grow that message across multiple countries so you know we're talking here about the British experience but Actually, the time spent, you know, in cultures across the world are experiencing the same thing where people are spending less and less time together, eating together and celebrating. Um, so we're working with with chefs and we're working with food influencers in not only the UK, but also in Hong Kong, in Singapore, um, in Dubai and across the kind of Middle East. And really building that conversation on using social media. So using an opportunity to to tell stories, to pass recipes, um, and to uh, encourage people to post their own experiences of cooking with their children. And it's been really incredible to see here in the UK... We've worked with uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've posted with Georgie Hayden and who obviously her books and her experience talks quite a lot around the knowledge that she has learned as a chef from her grandmothers, from her yayas and and passing those traditions on to her young daughters. We have worked with um, Chetna McCann who cooked with her daughter and posted a really lovely story um, of cooking together. And most recently, we've had Melissa Thompson post a pic, uh, a reel where she was cooking with her parents and showing that sort of intergenerational connection. And I think one of the things that's been lovely to see is the comments and the amount of people that have jumped in to the comments to say, wow, this reminds me of my childhood, or this is what it was like with my grandmother, or, you know, and, and inspiring people to say that reminds me i need to play a role in passing this on to the next generation because this brings up such great memories for me
0: that's so lovely i have to say i did slightly giggle to myself while you were speaking uh julian because my parents came from quite different backgrounds my father came from a very privileged background and his his mother never cooked because she had a cook. And my mother did not come from a privileged background and her mother hated cooking. (laughs) And I remember her as a child that the kitchen was a kind of place of fear and dread. And when she found tinned vegetables, she was so happy because all she had to do was pick them up. (laughs) My mother was a highly competent cook, but never confident. So I I really learned it for myself. Yeah. And I think that's
1: the other thing too, right? Is that you're not alone in that there that we there are plenty um of us out there that that kind of learn have have had to learn that for ourselves and you know that sort of leads into the next part of the the campaign in a way which is that beyond just the family food has a role to bring communities together the role of the chosen family in cooking and um it can be a really powerful piece of this as well and how you pass those skills on If you have learned it for yourself and so this looking at this community aspect, one of the things that we're really trying to highlight is where chefs and restaurants are, you know, empowering new people to get into kitchens or to get engaged with food as a way that then ricochets and creates community impact. So the first of those stories was of Luminary Bakery and obviously the amazing work that Luminary does in passing those skills on to women that really empowers them with not only a job in the immediate term, but then skills to pass on and and to, you know, to gain employment and hospitality and food can be a really powerful place for those skills and for disadvantaged groups to find community and to find opportunity and to to create that social impact.
0: Yes, that's so interesting, because really, for many people nowadays, their community is their family. I mean, family is used in a very kind of narrow, yeah. specific way. Yes. But I mean, I know in City of Westminster, for example, more than 50% of people live by themselves. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Very high percentage. And we do... I think, is it one in four people, adults in this country, live on their own? Wow, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and friends are the new family or your community. I mean, it, it might be just the lady at the corner shop that you see once a week when you go to Pick up your newspaper and a pint of milk. But That's it's so important community. because, as you're as you're talking about that, you know, it's then
1: not a surprise that we sort of we have an epidemic of loneliness in this country. And I think, you know, studies are now repeatedly showing that loneliness can have the impact on our health in, that smoking for your for your whole life can have. And so, actually, it's really fundamental. Humans are social creatures, and coming together around food and finding those connections. Is actually something that's really fundamental to our health going forward, and you know I've just just returned from some time some time away, and it really reminded me that um, the blue zones in the world, so the places in the world where people live the longest, right? You've got these pockets all around the world, and um, one of them is Sardinia, and there's lots of exploration that's gone into the blue zones and what are the di- different diets in these regions. And there's actually quite a lot of variety of what those diets are. There's a lot of, you know, you, one person might say there's no dairy in a diet. And then you go to a place like Sardinia and there's actually quite a lot of, go- of goats, cheese and milk in the diet. And one person might say lots of fish. And, and then you go to another place and there's not a lot of fish. So it's not actually the food that ends up being the commonalities. There ended up be, there's, there's research done on what those commonalities are. And community is one of the biggest commonalities that leads to people living longer. And so, whether that's, you know, old men sitting in a square playing a game of cards or a game of, you know, bulls or bocce or whatever it might be called, finding that, that community is really important. Um, and food has the real power to do that. And, um, you know, another personal story when I, when I first left university, I moved to New York City and, I'm not from, I'm from California. And, uh, you know, New York is all of those things that big city and that isolated, you know, can be all of those isolating things. And we used to do what we called a family dinner on Sunday nights at my apartment, which was for a bunch of strays like me, you know, people that didn't have family that lived in New York, and that came together and, and cooked on a Sunday night. And you start to build those connections and build those networks. And I think out of that family dinner, spawned family dinners in, you know, as people went on to their own lives in different places, spawned those those newer communities and you can have a real connection through sharing a meal.
0: Absolutely. It's quite interesting. I don't know if you've seen in the press recently, there's um been quite a lot about the right to eat by yourself in a restaurant on your own. Yes. Which yes. of course I completely salute. Yes. But for me and, and sometimes I do because I I'm out and about and running a business and I'm not all, but I, I, you know, and if I were in a different family circumstance, I would think, yeah, why not? Yes. But it's such a pleasure to eat with other people and to discuss what you're eating and maybe share it and all of those things. Exactly.
1: And I think, I think absolutely that, um, you know, we want spaces that people can access and we, you know, and then as restaurants we want to be, um, accessible and open. So that ability for people to come in on their own is, 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 um, you know, is important to creating that environment in which, um, people are able to access, anybody is able to access the a restaurant. But again, even that actually, I would say if you're choose, if you're, if you're dining alone in a restaurant, you're not actually truly alone, are you? Because you have those interactions, you have those servers, you have that connection. And and potentially that's another place to say restaurants are a place where you can be alone amongst others and, you know, and help to, again, find that bridge to some community.
0: I can really identify with that. I moved to the countryside when my son was a five-day-old baby and my husband was still working in London. So I was alone and lonely a lot. And I used to go to, there was a nearby supermarket with a cafe where you had free baby food and free newspapers so I used to pop him in the high chair get it's the so newspaper powerful and a cup of coffee because there were people around me yeah
1: it's so powerful I mean it's so interesting because um yeah that resonates with me a lot and and mothers that that in my network that really the the value of a supermarket cafe in that way when they were kind of losing their minds by themselves with a with a young baby um yeah, I think the 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 value of of these spaces, I think, can't be overstated on our on our mental health and on on our culture. Do you know what I mean? I think restaurants. I, I was actually just before this call, I was um, I was speaking to a restaurateur, and we were talking about how are things going in the restaurants, and obviously, it's a difficult context out there in which restaurants are operating. And I think that one of the things that we all as citizens need to remember is that if we want these spaces to remain, you know, we need to engage with them. We need to dine out and we need to participate um, because we don't want, and it's the same way with, you know, shopping locally and all of that, where we don't want our high streets to be entirely abandoned. And we don't want our only food options to be from behind a delivery platform. We want, we need to, we need to engage in a world which still allows for, these vibrant cities that we that we live in and these vibrant communities
0: i love all of that julian i'm going to throw you a little curveball so let's say you were going to have a family lunch or supper tomorrow who would you invite and what would you cook
1: so, I, my mom is currently visiting from, uh, from California. So, I have her, uh, in town and I have a, a four year old and a six year old, um, and my husband who, who lives with me. So, I would absolutely be getting my four year old and my six year old involved in, in preparing the meal. And we've just come home and I think, this sort of, as much as this rain has has not been a lovely summer for people here in in London. I think the garden has enjoyed the sunshine and the rain. And though I live in central London, I've got a, a small plot about a meter squared, um, and we've got some courgettes in the garden at the moment that are still in that kind of young and tender stage. And um, and then have those nice lovely courgette flowers um, that are so vibrant right now. So I think that's a really great way to get your kids involved is even if you don't have much space, like I don't, um, you, you know, growing something kids feel really empowered um, when it's something that they have grown and participated in and that act of going out and picking it makes them feel this whole new level of ownership over that. So I think those would need to feature on our menu somewhere So maybe we're stuffing those courgette flowers and then using the courgette itself, which is sort of leading me down a a Italian kind of road for this meal. And then in this hypothetical world, I think I would be looking at, we've got two close families in our uh, neighborhood where our children are, are friends and really kind of build out that backbone of the fact that It's really difficult to parent on your own these days. You need a, you need a community of parents around you to be able to manage life with small children. So I think we would probably be, hopefully the sun would come out. We would eat lunch in, in the garden and it would be my mom, my boys, and then kind of our two, uh, neighbours as well, coming round for a meal.
0: That sounds delightful, Gillian, and I'd love to be there too. Thank yes, you so yes. much. Thank you so <laughs> much. I much so enjoyed conversation. our conversation. Really wonderful. Thank you. And, and here's to um, eating together as family and friends. Exactly. Cheers to that.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food
0: FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.